This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Teaching school is a funny thing. In many jobs, people are prepared to stay to contribute to the company where they've been trained and prepared. But in schools, teachers pour their lives and energy into the lives of students, preparing them to leave, not to stay. Teachers stay, students leave, and the process starts over each autumn. Except sometimes teachers leave, and this is one of those times. Dennis Johnson has taught at Westminster Seminary, California since 1982, joining the faculty only two years after the seminary opened its doors. When Dennis began, Westminster Seminary, California met in a nondescript office building just off California State Route 78, just west of Escondido. Two years later, the seminary moved to its present campus at 1725 Bear Valley Parkway, and we were about 75 students or so. During those 35 years, the seminary has graduated more than 1,000 students who've gone on to serve the Lord in various roles across the globe. And Dennis has taught most of them. Not only has Dennis helped to prepare students across the globe, he has traveled and taught himself globally. He's also been deeply involved in the life of his local congregation, New Life Presbyterian Church, both as an OPC and later as a PCA congregation right here in Escondido. He's author of several books, including Him We Proclaim, Preaching Christ from All the Scriptures, The Message of Acts and the History of Redemption, Triumph of the Lamb, A Commentary on Revelation, Philippians and the Reformed Expository Commentary Series, and Walking with Jesus Through His Word, Discovering Christ in All the Scriptures. All these titles and more are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu. And most recently, he has edited The Treasury of God's Wisdom, Meditations from the Faculty of Westminster Seminary, California, available as a free ebook at wscal.edu. Dennis and his wife Jane have four married children and many grandchildren. Hi, Dennis, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thank you very much, Scott. Well, you are bringing your career of seminary teaching for 35 years to an end this year. I'm sure that decision wasn't difficult, and we'll get to how you made that decision and why you're retiring and why you're going on to other fields of service. But let's start at the beginning. How did you decide to become a pastor? Walk us through that process, because I know some of our listeners are asking themselves that very same question. Am I called to pastoral ministry? How do I know I should be a pastor? And what happens if I decide to do that? That is a great question. I'll give you the short version. I suppose from my junior high, high school years, I sensed that God may be calling me to pastoral ministry. I'd been raised in a home where my mom and dad knew and loved the Lord, as my grandparents had before them, and just had a sense that that would be something that I might be useful for. So when I went to college, I went to a Christian college and began as a pre-ministerial major, which was a little bit of this and a little bit of that, with some Greek thrown in, but liberal arts generally. And then I had a philosophy professor, actually, who who took several of us aside who were in the pre-ministerial major and did his utmost to talk us out of doing that major. Not because he wanted to dissuade us from being pastors, but he said, you should get a real major in your undergraduate study. So I majored in English literature. Then I thought, oh, I'd love to be an English professor. Wouldn't that be great? But I had a roommate 
who sensed, as I did, in fact, he was part of that conversation, he was talked into being a philosophy major, had a roommate who sensed that he was called to pastoral ministry, and he sensed I was too, (laughs) and uh, persuaded me to uh, do a really wacky thing, which college juniors sometimes do. (laughs) Three of us uh, in a VW Bug drove around the clock from Southern California to Philadelphia to look at Westminster Seminary, Philadelphia, the only Westminster that was at that point. And those three, four days on campus didn't recommit me to being a pastor, but it persuaded me that I wanted to be at Westminster next. And so upon graduation and then married the day after graduation, Jane thought I was going to be an English professor who was going to spend a year at Westminster. We drove across the country that summer. And once I got to Westminster, I couldn't just take a year. I wanted to do another and another. And somewhere in there, I thought, I really want to teach. But I don't want to teach English anymore. I want to teach New Testament. So that was my thinking going into my senior year. And uh, filled the pulpit a few times for a little church in northern New Jersey and thought maybe it would be a good idea for me to be licensed in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, just in case I wasn't quite clear on what I was about. And soon after the turn of the year, moving toward my graduation, I got a phone call from one of the elders of that little church in Fairlawn, New Jersey, Grace Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And he said, well, we had a congregational meeting and we voted to call you as our pastor. (laughs) Thank you for letting me know. Yeah. Yeah, And I didn't say to Gary Hogarheit at the time, I didn't say, wasn't I supposed to know I was a candidate? (laughs) But uh, that gave me pause. And I've always given a lot of weight not just to what I feel God's call is, but to what others see and how God may minister to them through me. You know, Jane and I gave very serious prayer and thought. We went up north to North Jersey to talk with the folks at Fairlawn. I talked with people who knew the church and knew me, including Dr. Robert Strimple, who was, I think, academic vice president at Westminster Philadelphia at that point. And he told me at that point, he said, I think maybe you'll teach seminary someday, but you'll be a better professor for having been a pastor first. So I accepted that call and we moved to New Jersey and I was ordained there. Loving congregation. A little hard for me because I wanted to see instant big results. I hadn't learned much patience, but God was doing more behind the scenes than I knew. But that's the beginning. You know, that, He always that is. Call. Yes, he always is. Yes. Fair enough. And then you were called to a congregation in Los Angeles. Right, in Los Angeles. Much more familiar territory to me. I'd been raised in one of the suburbs of Los Angeles on the east side, San Gabriel Valley. It was about the same size congregation in a building located in a neighborhood that was overwhelmingly Hispanic, but also a lot of Asian Americans in the wider community. So it was more, you know, ethnically diverse. Just a lot of interesting challenges. Fairly good number for that size congregation of uh, serious college students who had grown up in the congregation, wanted to know more about the Lord. It was exciting. It had different challenges. We began to do some outreach in the community through teaching English as a second language and tying that in with a devotion led by one of our elders who had come from Mexico and so was fluent in both Spanish and English. Just the beginning of actually touching our neighborhood. Most of the folks in the church had once lived in that immediate community, but now it moved a little further out in the suburbs, so we're commuting back. But we began to have a little bit of a beachhead right within our community there, too, which was good. You're listening to Office Hours, and we're talking to Dr. Dennis Johnson about his career as a pastor and as a seminary professor here at Westminster Seminary, California. 
And then finally, Bob Strimple's prophecy came true. Yes, Bob Strimple, in my senior year, said, I think you might be a prof someday. And, you know, in God's providence, he had moved us back to California several years before Westminster thought seriously about Southern California. They had looked at the possibility of starting a campus or even relocating in the San Francisco Bay Area, decided that wasn't going to work. But then a group of Reformed Christians in mainly San Diego County got together over in Carlsbad for an evening. And uh, actually, I was invited to that, even though I was up in L.A. So I was there at that meeting. We put our names on a petition to ask Westminster to consider launching a California campus and putting it somewhere in Orange or San Diego counties. So before that evening in Carlsbad, I need to go back and just recall the fact that keeping Bob Strimple's advice in mind. While I was in New Jersey, I nibbled away slowly at a Master of Theology program at Westminster. I would drive down on Mondays and then go to class and then come back and return to my pastoral work there and finish up the Master of Theology actually after the call to Los Angeles. And then in Los Angeles, did basically the same thing at Fuller Theological Seminary in the doctoral program. So I was nudging my way toward uh, a PhD. And therefore, when Westminster actually responded to that petition from Reformed Christians, began to think about assembling a faculty out here, uh, Bob Strimple asked me if I would consider joining the faculty and begin to teach New Testament, which was a dream come true. A little bit of a scary dream because we weren't sure if it was going to last, but it was, you know, what could be greater than to teach for a school for my alma mater, but to serve the West Coast and to teach a subject that I just dearly, dearly loved and had loved from my college days when I took a lot of New Testament, New Testament Greek, and be able to equip pastors to preach, especially preach the New Testament from the original languages. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. The listener should understand that if he or she should come to campus now, you'll see a chapel, a classroom building, sort of a main admin building with some classrooms, a library that's, you know, fairly substantial. And now this marvelous housing project with nine buildings, eight buildings with apartments, 64 some apartments and um, a commons building. So the whole place is 18 acres and very well established and built and well populated with students. But in 1980, when they founded the seminary over in the office building in San Marcos, and then in 84, when they moved to the present campus, the world was very different. And there weren't 150 students, and there weren't all of these buildings. You guys had to start from scratch. It was tight. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) I think back about the early years, especially in the office complex over in San Marcos. Bob Strimple, as president, had his own office. Alma Winnie, as dean of students, had his own office. The rest of the faculty were all in a big open area. Kind of a bullpen. Uh, bullpen, kind of, yeah. So John Frame was in one corner, and Meredith M. Klein was in another, and I was in another, and Dirk Bergsma was in another corner. And we could all hear everybody else's conversations. And I've often thought that was ironic, because as I would sit at my desk working on my New Testament stuff, and I would listen to Dr. Bergsma trying to persuade some students who thought they knew how to preach, <laughs> that they actually had some things to learn about preaching— I remember the thought going through my mind then, being a homiletics professor, a practical theology professor has got to be a thankless job. I never want that job. (laughs) Which is ironic. Yeah, yeah, it's ironic. I mean, he was so patient. 
I don't know. I, we didn't have the technology then that we have now for recording student sermons. That has helped a lot with student humility and teachability that they have to view their video before they come. We did use, I think, videotape back then, but apparently this student that I can think of saw himself in a kinder light than he should have. Anyway, it was just interesting to be in the bullpen and to think about that. And now here I have for, well, since 97, succeeded Dirk and teaching preaching after the years in New Testament. So you have filled three major roles at Westminster Seminary, California. You were professor of New Testament for the first phase of your service here, and then during much of that time, and then even after, you were also academic dean basically the equivalent of the vice president for academic affairs. And you did that, I think, three different times. Three different stints. If memory serves, and then Mm -hmm. became professor of practical theology, fulfilling your, maybe not prophecy, but your worst fear when you were were watching Dr. Bergsman try to persuade students that maybe they had not yet arrived. Yeah, when I think about the three things I've done, the expression jack of all trades and the other part of it also (laughs) comes to mind, master of none. I think your students have been satisfied. So for what that's worth. Oh, well, what do they know? Yeah. (laughs) That's good. I'm glad. What was it like when you began teaching as a prof of New Testament? You know, the listener might not understand how fearsome it can be to stand up in front of a group of eager seminarians, and you now have the responsibility to try to give them their sort of basic education in a given field on which you hope they're going to add, but you have to lay the baseline for their education, for their ministry, for the rest of their life. How was that for you? It was pretty daunting, actually. I was uh, painfully aware of how much I didn't know. But also, as you mentioned, I was aware of my responsibility to help students get a good foundation for how they interpret the scriptures. So I wanted to make sure that they got a perspective on redemptive history, reading all of scripture in the light of its flow of redemptive history, what we had learned from Gerhardus Voss, not we personally, but through his writings and those influenced by them. Dr. Richard Gaffin was a big influence on me at Westminster Seminary, so I wanted to pass that along. At the same time, I knew that they could ask questions that were way over my depth and uh, actually One of the early years, the students would have a picnic where they would do a little spoof of faculty members. And the one who spoofed Dr. Johnson, typically Dr. Johnson's answer to any question was, well, I don't know, but I'll get back to you on that. (laughs) So I guess I had said that maybe a little too often. At least that was the pattern, but probably better than faking it, I would imagine. I guarantee you it's better than faking it. So those words, I don't know, are liberating words. They are indeed. They are indeed. How was it for you wearing those three different hats? I mean, you've actually switched fields of study. You did your doctoral work in systematic theology on the person of Christ, which involved a fair bit of work on Hebrews. And I remember as a student sitting in that course, hearing you lecture on Hebrews and being very impressed. And you really opened up that book for me so that I could see, you know, how it worked on its own terms and what the pastor, the author was interested in, but also how it fit in the broader scope of Scripture and, maybe most importantly for me, how Hebrews helps us to understand the rest of Scripture. And then you begin investing yourself in New Testament studies and becoming proficient in that, and while you're also serving as academic dean at different times, and then with the retirement of Dr. Bergsma, you put your hat in the ring, as it were, to become his successor as professor of practical theology. Walk us through your thinking and how that affected you as a teacher and then maybe to some degree as a pastor. 
Well, I think you got it right that my doctoral studies on the person of Christ, trying to wrestle with the question of his being immutable, unchangeable with respect to his divine nature, and yet also in the incarnation with respect to his humanity, really coming to experience change and suffering, obviously, and temptation so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest. That really was the beginning of a lot of what has happened since. So it was great. Alma Winnie was my senior professor in New Testament, and uh, he said I could choose any other New Testament required course as long as I took Hebrews to Revelation, because he didn't want to deal with the book of Revelation. So that was great, because that gave me a lot of time, and probably at the point when you took it, most of the course was on Hebrews and hardly anything on the other general epistles or the book of Revelation, but that's okay. I began to being a little bit more in balance uh, and talk more about Revelation. Obviously, that eventually led to uh, writing and publishing of Triumph of the Lamb. Well, and I remember that, actually. I remember some of that material as you walked us through the Revelation. And again, that was very helpful because you opened up the book and showed us the cycles in the book. And that, you know, you can't just start at the beginning and march through the end and read it in a linear fashion. It's not intended to be read that way. And that was very helpful. I was able to, before Triumph came out, mediate some of that to my congregation. Oh, that's so, great. That's it, great. Uh, yeah. Which is what we do. This is what we students do. We take what you guys tell us and then we repeat it to other people. Hopefully we get it right. right? Yeah, and you probably improve on it, <laughs> I think. So anyway, you know, so Al gave me this choice. So I also chose... Acts and the Pauline Epistles, because I was working in the Pauline Epistles on the person of Christ as well. And in those years, we did group with the letters of Paul, we grouped the book of Acts as setting the historical context for the planting of those churches. Now we've moved Acts over probably where it really belongs, along with Luke's gospel and the other three gospels as well. But that got me into the book of Acts, and it got me into seeing how Luke under the inspiration of the Spirit, just sees in Christ, particularly now in the ascended Christ's work in the church in the book of Acts, the fulfillment of the Old Testament. It got me into the sermons in the book of Acts. So I heard how Peter and Stephen and Paul could take the Old Testament texts and show the fulfillment in Christ. So that was a feeder also into what the Lord had in mind eventually to lead me into teaching, preaching as well. So both of those were great experiences. And then when the time came, when Dr. Bergsma said at 70, probably long enough for him to be full-time teaching, of course, he would come back for many years, which was great to do some part-time teaching. I was on the search committee, and Dr. Ed Clowney was on the search committee, and we were discussing various candidates. I was not thinking of myself as a candidate, but uh, in that discussion, Dr. Clowney posed the question, maybe I should think about doing that. He was great for complimenting and humbling at the same time, <laughs> as he said. Now, I wouldn't have said this a year or two ago, but you're starting to learn to preach. And I've been a pastor for, you know, this was 97, so I was ordained in 73. So I'm finally learning to preach. Yeah, you've been at it for 25 years. Yeah, starting I'm starting to learn. to learn. Anyway, and what was also liberating, Dr. Clowney said, and just take everything you've been teaching in New Testament and smuggle it into some practical theology course. <laughs> so Hebrews is a key part of our opening section. It's in him we proclaim of our opening course on ministry of the word. Here is a sermon preached to a Christian congregation under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in writing. It has a lot to teach us about preaching. So I can see now in retrospect God's plan and giving me certain courses that led me to be ready to teach preaching. The other factor was that in the early years, we had a doctor of ministry program in preaching. Dr. J. Adams directed it, and he would bring Dr. Clowney out from the East to teach 
a week-long course on preaching Christ from the Old Testament or Christ from the Pentateuch or Christ from the wisdom literature or Christ from the Gospels, whatever. And then, uh, as Dr. Adams said to me now, Dennis, he could call me Dennis because he was my prof, right? Dennis, I want you to come in in the afternoon after they've heard Clowney teach in the morning and you show them how this is a legitimate hermeneutic, that this isn't just some kind of random allegory, but show them the, the foundation for it. And that course also became kind of a feeder into my teaching, preaching, and practical theology as well. So you're thinking about seminary, but you're asking yourself, where will I live in Escondido? Westminster Seminary, California has good news. We're building a place for you to live on campus. In the spring of 2018, we'll open a new residential village of eight residential buildings, 64 apartments, including one, two, and three bedroom units, and a commons where seminary families can fellowship together. Here's Joel Kim, president of Westminster Seminary, California, on the benefits of our new residential village. Escondido is a beautiful place in which to live, but students wonder if they've actually afforded. Our goal is to benefit the students by providing a beautiful but affordable place to live on campus. In addition, we believe that learning happens not only in the classroom, but also by living together in community. Just as lifelong learning begins in the classroom, so lifelong relationships will begin in our new residential village. For more information, call toll-free 888-480-8474. That's 888-480-8474. Or visit us online at wscal.edu. That's wscal.edu. And ask us about our new residential village. wscal.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. All the time that you have been teaching, whether New Testament or practical theology, you've also been serving as at least an associate pastor for one period anyway, and an interim pastor, almost on a full-time basis for a short period. How has your activity as a pastor while you've been teaching, how has that fed into your teaching of pastoral theology? Well, I have often thought that in God's providence, putting me and Jane and our family at New Life Presbyterian Church and then having me called to serve as an associate pastor on the session there for so many years was a way of the Lord to teach me areas of practical theology that I hadn't learned in my MDiv work and that I hadn't studied in a PhD or a doctor of ministry program. It just kept me in the life of the church. And being at a monthly elders meeting and uh, wrestling with issues of of church discipline and uh, pastoral care for people and decision-making just keeps it very fresh for me. I'm not just teaching from my eight and a half years of full-time pastoral experience from 73 to the end of 81, but I'm teaching from what I'm still living in the life of the church. And then I did more than once think uh, the, the interim pastorate was from the end of 99 to almost the end of 2001, where as associate pastor, I was filling the pulpit most Sundays and moderating the session and generally overseeing a lot of things with the help of an assistant pastor who helped in many ways. I thought that was the Lord's crash course to me. <laughs> Two years after I'd begun teaching practical theology, he said, now I want to give you a real taste of what real pastoring is like on a week by week week basis. 
happily, that was in one of those periods when I was not also trying to be academic dean. That was a period when I kind of worn myself out on deaning and uh, others stepped in. You stepped in for a while and that. So I was only torn in three or four different directions <laughs> and not 12. But it was difficult. That period for our congregation was a hard period. We came into it in a hard way unexpectedly. And yet, you know, I just sensed God's people praying for all of us as elders, praying for me and the Lord, the Holy Spirit, really, really sustaining uh, us in that time in answer to our desperate prayers and then bringing us a, a senior pastor who's been feeding us since 2001. You really learn in those uh, dark times, the difficult times, how dependent the ministry is on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. When things are going well and people are praising you and everything is outwardly prosperous and, you know, people are calling you up for advice and whatnot and sending you book contracts, it's possible in that kind of prosperity, outward prosperity, to lose sight of the fact that everything of any value that transpires in ministry is really the fruit of the mysterious work of the Holy Spirit. That is so absolutely true. It is absolutely true that nothing really comes from what we personally contribute. And he uses us, and that's wonderful. But what's good comes from his work, his sustaining work, and his touching people's lives. I often say to students, you will leave the pulpit having preached a sermon that you know is your absolute worst sermon ever. <laughs> it was incoherent. <laughs> you know, you forgot all the great illustrations. You went right past them in your notes. It was horrible. And then you'll have somebody come up to you and say, Pastor, the Lord spoke to me from this word. And uh, you realize it's him, it's not you. Yeah, well, that's right. How many times has Mrs. Clark said to me when I thought, you know, that wasn't half bad? She says to me, what were you talking about? <laughs> well, there's that too, yes. The sermon that you thought was really, if yeah. not quite out of the park, at least a double, yeah, you exactly. know, and no, 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 it didn't cut it either. So just because it was, you know, satisfying for me doesn't mean it was necessarily a blessing for the congregation. And conversely, just because what seemed to me as the preacher, a total disaster that I crashed and burned, nevertheless, God the Holy Spirit is mysteriously at work through what we call the due use of ordinary means exactly. to make use of, and not that we are certainly counseling or teaching students to, you know, bless this mess. We're not sending people into the pulpit ill-prepared. But, you know, in the existential moment of a 30-minute attempt to preach a passage, things can go from our perspective well or they can go badly. But what matters is the mysterious, powerful work of the Holy Spirit who is using the law and the gospel to convict his elect, to regenerate his elect, and to edify his elect which is an amazing thing, and you've been experiencing that now since 1973. So, in your experience, how do you think ministry has changed? I know it's a huge question, but as you're beginning to draw at least one phase of your ministry to a close, you must have noticed some significant changes, I would think. Yeah, I do think, unquestionably, cultural issues are different. And I think the church as we think especially about the United States or North America, I think it would have been beyond our imagination in the 70s when I was called and ordained into ministry that the church in North America would have to seriously consider whether the church in North America would face the situation in which the LBGTQ agenda is not only acceptable but is really imposed 
you know, and right now at this point, it's imposed on Christians of conscience in their business and their workplace. But the question will come soon whether churches are viewed as the ancient Christians were viewed as haters of the human race because they didn't participate, whether Christians are viewed that way, uh, not because we are, but because we know the God who's designed us, male and female, and we uphold that and teach that. And not to be mean, but simply to be faithful to Scripture and to do what is ultimately in the best interests of those to whom we're trying to minister. Exactly. In 1973, you would not have been shocked if a politician had stood up and said, and I'm not saying this is true or even a good or wise thing to say, but as a cultural matter, it would not have shocked anyone for a politician to stand up and say, this is a Christian nation, therefore X, and then go on to prescribe policies or to say something on the basis of that premise. And some people would have balked at it, but a lot of people wouldn't have thought anything of that premise. Today, if we're one to stand up in public and make that announcement, that would be wildly controversial and it would start a firestorm of criticism and backlash. And almost certainly any public official who said something like that would find himself or herself on the hot seat and having to give explanations and policies or apologies and corrections and the like. This is something I'm trying to communicate to my students, that we're in the midst of a very fast-moving revolution, another phase of a social revolution that's at least decades old, if not much older. Right, right. Absolutely true. Yeah, um, some years ago, I ran across a book called Recovering the Christian Past, uh, Robert Wilkin, University of Virginia, basically talking about the church, mainly in the period of the early church fathers and its minority status, its despised minority status, and also the fact that uh, the kind of the cultural consensus in the ancient Greco-Roman world was a kind of a, an urbane pluralism, relativism of its own kind. Everybody gets their own worldview, but nobody has the right to impose a worldview on anybody else. And I've thought that the parallels are coming closer and closer to the church in the Roman Empire. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. We actually have to think now, not that it's necessarily happening, and I don't want to overstate things, but there was an instance in Oregon where Christians were identified in a shooting, a school shooting, and the Christians were singled out and shot. We at least have to contemplate the possibility of violence, you know, being visited on the church, and at least in the future where it was maybe unthinkable in 1973, persecution of Christians is certainly not unthinkable today. Yeah. So the world has changed dramatically in 40 years. Yeah, I would say that's definitely true. And I think the technological changes also have affected, as we talked a little bit at other times and even a little bit in some of our interviews, about attention span, capacity for deep thought. Some pressures have been applied to the church to say, well, we need to dispense with preaching. And, you know, there was dialogue for a while. I think that fad's kind of gone. I don't know. But I think we need to be bold to say that well-expounded scripture preaching that drives home things to the heart is not passe, that it is important and done well, the Holy Spirit will use it because it is his chosen means of grace. But it's probably true that a younger generation may have more trouble paying attention to a 30, 35, 40-minute discourse, which means our content and, and our conviction need to be persuasive, but ultimately we're dependent on the Spirit of God. We're speaking now into a culture that is largely formed by factions, fractions, and distrust. Whatever cultural unity 
at least at some level, might have existed 40 years ago, has largely been fractured. And so now as a teacher, much less as a preacher, I'm conscious of the fact that I'm speaking, especially when I think about speaking to young people, I'm speaking to people who've been taught that anyone who says that X is true is really trying to exercise power and is not actually making a truth claim. Because we all know there isn't any such thing as that kind of truth. There's your truth, my truth. So as you said earlier, we're back to, in a sense, Greco-Roman polytheism. The one thing you couldn't say in the Greco-Roman world was, I will not conform to polytheism. Even if you didn't believe it, you had to outwardly go through the ritual, you had to pour the offering, you had to swear allegiance to Caesar, and so forth. They didn't expect you necessarily to believe it, but you had to conform. And if you didn't conform, you were branded, as you said, and this is what the pagan critics said of the Christians— a hater of humanity. And here we are again now, haters of humanity, standing up for capital T truth embodied in Jesus Christ, who is the truth and revealed in an inerrant holy scripture. What a countercultural thing to do. Yes. Yeah. And that makes it all the more important that we do that with, with forthrightness, obviously, but also with compassion and with gentleness to do all that is within us to convey the fact that we really care about people who violently disagree with us. We really care about them as persons made in the image of God. Because it would be very easy for us to lapse into a kind of a bunker mentality that will fire back when we're fired upon only and not show the kind of compassion that we see the early church showing, we see it in Jesus' response uh, to those who oppressed and persecuted him. We need that grace to respond to hostility and not with just retaliation and more hostility, but with kindness. So you're bringing to a close a 35-year career of seminary teaching, which is longer than I've been a pastor. But pastors don't just stop most of the time. We go do something else. So what's next for Dennis Johnson? Well, what's next for me, as far as we can see, and we can't really see the future, is when I retire next June, June 2018, Jane and I have come to the conviction that it would be wise for us to be closer to some of our children's families and to be closer to them while we can be of help to them, not only when we need them to be of help to us. So uh, we are prayerfully making a plan to move to eastern Tennessee where uh, we have a son and daughter-in-law and four grandchildren and a daughter and son-in-law and two more grandchildren, and to be involved in our grandchildren's lives for a while in a way that we haven't uh, since all of our kids' families live in other places, East Asia, Colorado, Tennessee, to mentor our grandchildren to the extent that our daughter and son-in-law and son and daughter-in-law need our mentoring just to be there in the family. And then there are some things in the back of my mind that I'd love to study more and write about that I think would be of help to the church that I haven't had time to work on yet. One of them is this whole question of preaching Christ from wisdom literature, and I want to work on that. An editor with whom I've worked at, the publisher that has done most of my stuff, has posed the idea of my writing something, a kind of a new introduction to biblical theology, redemptive history as it focuses on Christ. And then up to get acquainted with the churches, probably especially the Presbyterian Church in America congregations in that area. I have friends who are pastors in that area. Just to be available to help in whatever way we can be will be about an hour's drive from Covenant College, our denominational college. There's a Christian college 
in the town where we plan to live that our son-in-law teaches business for, so maybe it can be of some use there. Actually, we've grown to appreciate a ministry of hospitality to other members of the church, too. So, And there's a marvelous technology to which I want to alert you. It's called jet travel. And by jet travel, you will be able, as you will, to come back to Westminster in Escondido and maybe teach a January course when it's nice and sunny here and you can reconnect with your SoCal roots. That could be. I have mentioned to the powers that be here that uh, in that beautiful student residential village complex, it'd be nice if there were just one apartment set aside for visiting faculty. That, That might lure me back. That would be fun. Well, I know I speak for all the alumni whom you have taught and the current students and all the faculty with whom you've worked that we love you and we will miss you, but we are grateful for the way the Lord has used you here for 35 years at Westminster Seminary, California. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.